Isaiah 53, what a great, great text. Before we read it together, can I just say thank you for your welcome today. Thank you for those of you who have introduced yourselves. Thank you for forgiving me in anticipation of forgetting those names and asking you again. Um, but yeah, we've, we've felt the warmth of your welcome today, so thank you very much. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we love your word. We love the way in which you have used it to draw us to yourself and granted us that gift of that imperishable truth in our hearts that we might be born again through the living and abiding, abiding word of God. And indeed that through it you may teach us, train us, rebuke us, correct us, to take us on to that conformity to Christ, to Christ who is our subject this evening. Lord, give us eyes to see and a heart to believe in everything we're going to see in this text tonight concerning Jesus and the cross and what his death means. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I just say before we read Isaiah 53, uh, make no mistake, okay, as we read this text, this text is about Jesus. Now it's written, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus arrives on the scene. But we need to realize that the New Testament leaves us in absolutely no doubt that, that Jesus is the subject of Isaiah 53, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all agreed that this passage refers to Jesus. Acts chapter 8 and verse 35 tells us the early church were agreed that this passage refers to Jesus. Remember Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading this passage in Isaiah. And Philip asks him, do you, know, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, how do I understand unless someone explains it to me? And he goes on, what does Philip go on to talk about? Jesus. And then, of course, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 37, Jesus explains before his disciples, look, these scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ is our subject this evening. Let's hear God's word. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. 
though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. This is God's word to us. Here's three words that I never thought I would actually put together in a sentence. Welsh, pop, sensation. Who am I talking about? Bonnie Tyler. Do you remember Bonnie Tyler? No. This 80s pop princess, famous for that 1980s smash hit, holding out for a hero. I'm so sorry that at this moment, some of you are now singing this song in your head, and it's not going to go away, trust me. I know that. This is a song, okay? about someone needing help but finding a real shortage in available candidates. Okay, In this song, Bonnie Tyler paints the picture of a, the kind of hero that she believes will help her. And, and just listen, okay? Listen out for some of the characteristics of a hero, of a rescuer, okay? I'm not going to sing. <laughs> I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. He's got to be strong. <laughs> oh dear. He's got to be strong. And he's got to be fast. And he's got to be fresh from the fight. Whatever that means. He's got to be sure. And it's got to be soon, so he needs to be available. And he's got to be larger than life. Now that, now that paints a good picture of what the world describes as a hero. That's what most people would be looking for in a time of need. Someone who's strong, fast, fresh from the fight, sure, available, larger than life. That kind of personality, yeah? But here's the thing. Once in a while, someone comes along who does not fit that profile of a hero. But nevertheless comes to the rescue of people or a person irrespective of whether or not they fit this profile that Bonnie Tyler has painted for us. People like Frodo Baggins. I know he's not a real person, okay? Um, like Frodo Baggins. I mean, there's an unlikely hero from Lord of the Rings, if ever you saw one. I mean, does he fit Bonnie Tyler's photo fit for a start? Little Frodo's legs are too short for him to be fast. He doesn't look that strong, but heroically achieves that which people would have thought impossible for a halfling of his stature 
Now, here's the thing. Israel, okay? Israel, at the time of Isaiah's writing, the time of Isaiah's ministry and preaching, are holding out for a hero, okay? Everything to them looked absolutely lost. The most powerful nation at the time in the human realm was coming down, attacking them, killing them, carting them off into their own nation and back into slavery. But God interjects in this book of Isaiah through Isaiah's preaching and he says, everything's going to be okay. Some of you, yeah, are going to get killed. Some of you are going to go, but everything is going to be okay. What is God planning to do to rescue his people and involve someone called the servant, true hero? The people at the time might have said, Oh, thank you, Lord. We need someone to stand up. We need someone to speak out against this kind of oppression. Someone to fight for us. But here's where the surprising thing comes in, in this whole book of Isaiah. In chapters 42, 49, and 50, where this particular servant that we read about in in chapter 53 is described, he's portrayed as one who turns his back to his enemy as if opening his back for a whip. He's portrayed as one who is going to be so tender that he will not even bring up his guard to stop someone from reaching out, grabbing his beard, and yanking it out. He's going to be tender. I mean, does that sound like someone who's going to be the hero? The rescuer of Israel? I mean, the big question, really, that that must have been in the minds of the Israelites at this time. How on earth is this servant going to bring about any kind of rescue for his people, if that's what he does? You know, you can hear them respond. It sounds like he's going to let himself be killed. How can he, our rescuer, be our saviour, if all he does is die? Now, that's a good question. That's a good question. And here's what we learn at the very start here. This is what Isaiah points us to in verses 1 to 3 in chapter 53. It's understandable that this servant is overlooked as the hero. As the true rescuer, as the true saviour of God's people. Look with me, verses 1 to 3. Point 1, the servant is overlooked. By human standards, what Isaiah presents for us here is that he is unimpressive. This servant. He's not humanly speaking attractive. His birth and background, we know of Jesus, are simply plain. He was, in his appearance, as verse 2 says, quite simply like a blade of grass among thousands of other blades of grass on a garden lawn. He wasn't a golden shoot shining in the sunlight. He He just looked like he was the same as everyone else. Nothing outwardly striking in his appearance that would draw our gaze. And he was fragile, truly human. And that's why I think we see that the message that he proclaims is met with unbelief. That's what you see in verse 1, isn't it? Who has believed what he has heard from us? I mean, the question implies that people find his message hard to believe. It discloses that people will be prone, now listen to this, prone to underestimate, extend that word, underesteem, this servant. Why do you think that is? We do it all the time, actually. But why do you think we do that? Because people like us tend to adopt selfish criteria for accepting people, don't we? 
you know, with limited wisdom, we create desirable expectations. Where if someone, you know, fails to meet those expectations, as the servant did in verse 3, we end up underestimating people and even despising people and rejecting people just because they don't necessarily please us. They're not pleasing to look at, maybe, or maybe they just don't, you know, not someone that we think we'd be best friends with. I mean, that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible way to judge people. It's shallow, and it, and it actually results sometimes in the person we, dis, we, we despise knowing suffering, grief, and even sorrow. But the big question that hangs over this section here is, are, are you, you, are you underestimating the servant? Are you underestimating who this person called Jesus Christ is? Now, you might be asking, well, what's this to do with me? I thought you said a minute ago that Isaiah is speaking to, uh, to, to Israel here all those years ago. Well, yes. But verse 3 does something which none of the other servant songs do, actually. Everything broadens out to embrace everyone. All of humanity, really. Verse 3 implicates us. Because the problem's wider than Israel. It says, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we... Now, everyone's gathered into this now. We esteem him not. Are you underestimating the servant who was overlooked? We know this from Jesus' own ministry. John chapter 1 tells us this. He came through that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. My encouragement for you tonight, friends, is to listen closely to what Isaiah will go on and tell us. And not to despise the servant, not to underestimate him, not even to try and hide behind, you know, excuses of ignorance. Oh, I didn't really know who he was. Not really. That's why I despised him. No, men are without excuse. Verse 1 tells us that as well. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The answer is everyone. Now, in the Old Testament, what you see is that the arm of the Lord refers generally to the strength of God. But in Isaiah, it's different. In Isaiah, the arm of the Lord refers to a person. It's Jesus. He's the strength. God himself is our strength. And the encouragement, even in these first three verses, recognizing from the, the, what happened with Israel here, do not overlook and do not underestimate this servant. Why? Because the one who is likely to be despised and overlooked is in truth the saviour. That's point two. The servant is our saviour. Look at verses four to six. First question, really. I mean, do you know you need a saviour? That's the big question. Do you know that we are our own worst enemies when it comes to our lives? That we need saved, essentially, from the crushing penalty of sin. Sin is the most serious problem for our hearts. In God's eyes, sin deserves what verse 5 says it deserves. Crushing. Chastisement. Stripes. Gather all of those words under one category. Punishment. I mean, essentially, that's, that's what sin deserves and I wonder if that surprises you tonight I mean it surprises some people some people don't expect that some people just expect God to be like some kind of cosmic granddad accepting us all bouncing us on his knee lovingly of course others 
expect God to simply overlook our sin or, or, or maybe at least just minimize it a little bit. And again, often appealing, oh, he's loving, isn't he? Well, absolutely. But he is also just as well. And he would not be God if he overlooked or minimized sin to the extent where he would just accept us all. Puritan John Bunyan explains this to us really well, I think, where he says, if God, here's the problem, if God hides the sin or lessens it, he is faulty. So that's not an option. But if he leaves sin still upon us, we die. <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, that, that's a major problem right there. That's a dilemma. What a dilemma our sins present for us. And in a sense, what a, a dilemma our sins present for God. What will God do? Our lives hang in the balance. His glory and reputation hangs in the balance. We're walking a plank over a lake of fire here. This is as serious as it gets. And the people of Israel, certainly here, they maybe thought that their biggest problem was an invading army. But in reality, all those troops could do was destroy their bodies. But in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus advises us to consider a more solemn reality. that We should fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the Lord. Now you might be thinking, well, did Jesus really say that? I mean... Are you serious? Oh, yes. He was not joking. He spoke. You only need to need, read the Gospels in a cursory way to recognize. He spoke with such gravity about sin and its consequences to the extent that the current trend in church life today to minimize sin or rebrand it because it's just not cool for a church to talk about it is absolutely scandalous. It's a weighty thing, and it's a weighty thing because it is the biggest problem of our hearts. And it is the biggest problem of our hearts because if undealt with, we are not only dangling over the lake of fire, we are falling into that lake of fire. But here's where we see the good news of the gospel in Isaiah 53 again. Here's where we see this servant that was overlooked is the solution to the divine dilemma that John Bunyan presented to us a moment ago. Bunyan continues by asking, what will God do? And says he will then take our iniquity, our sin, to himself. He will make it his own and so deliver us. How can he possibly do that? By sending his servant, the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ into the world where as a man he would die and shed his blood on the cross of Calvary in our place and pay the penalty for our sin. Here's where we see the servant is our substitute. See it for yourself. Ten times in three verses we read of how Jesus has taken upon himself what is ours and given us what is his. He became what he was not so that we might become what we are not. Listen to this. Surely, in other words, no doubt about it, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for, what's the word? What's the word? Our transgressions. 
incredible. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds. Who's healed? Who's healed? Wow. <laughs> well, that's changed things, hasn't it? This is the great, great glory of the gospel, friends. The one who, from whom we need to be saved, in a sense, in terms of his furious wrath and his anger, is the one who saves us. There is that great exchange that takes place at the cross where, as, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness, the righteousness of God. Sinless, clear, clean, pure and free. Friends, do you realize, do you understand that your sin, which is your biggest problem, cannot be dealt with in any other way. You cannot earn favor with God by trying harder in your marriage or by simply adjusting your behavior or by playing some kind of, paying some kind of penance in afterlife limbo. Christ alone is the way that God has appointed for all to deal with our sin. And it is only and exclusively through faith in him that you can be forgiven and restored in your relationship with the Father. G.I. Parker says this, Jesus, moved by divine love and determined to do everything he could to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment, the crushing that Isaiah 53 talks about, for which we were inescapably destined and so won for us forgiveness, adoption and glory. Praise God, friends. That's the great glory of the gospel. The servant that's overlooked, the servant is our savior. Truly. But look at what makes this all the more astonishing. And makes the servant all the more winsome and worthy of all glory and praise. In verses 7 to 9, point 3, the servant was willing the servant was willing. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Verse 7 tells us he didn't open his mouth. And we know from the gospel accounts what, what it was like for him in those last days of his earthly life. He barely uttered a peep when condemned, even when liars are spewing out some nonsense about him to try and secure his disposal. Jesus is likened essentially to a sheep being sheared. I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you're chasing a sheep, it will run away from you. Trying to evade your capture at all costs. But if you catch it and lay it on its back, it will not fight back or try to wriggle away. It's just a picture of willing submission. And that's what we see before us. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in terms of the will of God the Father for the way of God the Father to save his people. And it saddens me that a plain and a prominent teaching like this from the Bible regarding the death of Jesus for our sins is the subject even of outrage and disdain among churches nowadays. I mean, some see the picture of God punishing his son on the cross as some form of cosmic child abuse. But that's just such an inappropriate comparison. I mean, no one who suffers abuse at the hands of another does so willingly. So that negates that kind of comparison straight away. 
And the picture that we have here in verses 7 to 9 is really clear. It accompanies the gospel accounts of Jesus before the Roman and Jewish leaders. What is it a picture of? It's of willing submission. Willing submission. Jesus is in agreement with the Father's will to crush him in order to bring about the possibility that you, my friend, might be saved and have your sins forgiven. Indeed, verse 11 reinforces this. It says, by his knowledge, by his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That knowledge isn't just a reference to the fact that Jesus knows what the Father is going to do. That he's kind of aware of what's coming. It's an expression of his conscious, mindful, willing agreement with the Father's will that by his substitutionary sacrifice he will achieve salvation for all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Listen friends, Jesus Christ, when it came to the cross, he did not close his eyes. He was not used unwittingly as a pawn. He knew the Father's will and by that knowledge joined the Father in the redeeming work. And he did so willingly and he did so effectively. Effectively. What what is the great result of an unimpressive servant who willingly becomes our saviour and dies in our place? Quite simple. Point four, glory to the servant. The servant was glorified. This is what we see in verses 10 to 12. He's glorified by his resurrection from the dead. This is what we see here. Well, verse 8 and 9 makes this clear. Uh, Sorry, where am I? Yeah, the crucified Jesus basically was dead. Okay, verses 8 and 9 make that absolutely clear. Cut off from the land of the living. Assigned a grave with the wicked. Verse 10, though, tells us that death could not hold him. It's incredible. And even as you see in the second part of verse 9, there there begins a crescendo that tells us that God is already starting to honor the servant's death even by his burial. Why? Because he's innocent. You know, there's no deceit in his mouth, remember. So he wasn't just thrown on a heap. Yeah, God had already begun to honor that sacrifice through his burial. But then verse 11, wow, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Jesus Christ, make no mistake, is alive to see and be satisfied with what his death has won. He's not frustrated. He's not bitter. He's not vengeful at what he had to to go through. He's going to look back over it all and consider it worthwhile, says Isaiah 53. He's going to be satisfied and great glory will come to him because of his great glory work and he will be glorified through the salvation of many who will believe in him and put their trust in him in many different ways first of all by his death and by his resurrection he wins pardon for believers verse 11 many will be justified in other words pardoned because if he bore our sin in death then our sin basically in that respect has been punished it's been dealt with And if our sin has been punished and dealt with then through his death, then we bear it no more. And if we bear it no more, we are then without guilt before the Father. And if we are without guilt before God the Father, we are justified. That is, acquitted, declared, righteous. 
Now you see what God is up to. In this great and awful crucifixion of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is providing for your acquittal. It's incredible. You didn't do a thing. (laughs) He's providing for your acquittal. He provides pardon for believers. That's the first thing. Second thing, by his death, by his resurrection, he grants victory to believers. Verse 12, he will divide the spoils with the strong because of all that he has done. And here's where we see that when you come to him in faith and repentance, you become a child of God. And the children of God are not just forgiven and acquitted. They are now victors with the Messiah in his triumph over death and the devil and all that is evil. And because of his triumph, we who believe in him will have such an inheritance in his name that he divides the spoils with the strong and share in his glory in the new heaven and new earth on that great day when it comes. But not only will he by his death and resurrection pardon believers and grant victory to believers, he we, as we were thinking about this morning, he pleads and makes intercession for believers. Indeed, verse 12 tells us he makes intercession for transgressors. And as I said this morning as well, this is one of my favorite verses. 1 John 2 verse 1. Well, it just tells us that great truth that we have a heavenly advocate who speaks to the Father in our defense. So when we feel guilty because of our sin, when we feel vile, when we feel helpless, we trust in the sufficiency of that sacrifice. And the fact that Jesus Christ is pleading our case before the Father constantly. And it's a great thing. I mean, who knows? You know, it might be the case where, 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 where I sin in some way and You know, it might be the case where Christ is just before the Father, bearing those wounds, visible in glory, certainly. And just says, you know, that Liam Garvey's a sinner. But Father, he's banking on these wounds. And he's banking on my saving work. Forgive. He's pleading our case before the Father. And we have that assurance. Not only by his death and resurrection does he pardon believers, grant victory to believers, plead for believers. He makes new, the possibility for people to become new believers. His death and his resurrection produce not only sinners who are now forgiven and free, but offspring, as we see in Isaiah 53, newborn children. And that's an incredible thing to see. We're not just declared to be okay in a judicial sense before God, but we actually, when we put our faith and our trust in him, we become adopted into his family, welcomed into the family to be at home with the Father in a personal and a relational sense. All the joys and privileges of sonship. And you did nothing. (laughs) You did nothing. Except sin. This is the gospel in essence, friends, in Isaiah 53. How clearly we see Jesus from this text. And it may be the case where some of you are here tonight and you who are hearing this are just trying to grasp this. Maybe some of you have heard it a number of times and maybe you're reluctant to go forward, put your faith in him. 
Well, the question I just want to ask you really openly tonight in relation to all that we have walked through in Isaiah 53, this willing servant who is our saviour truly, what stops you from believing? What stops you from receiving the great joys of this gospel that the Lord is holding out to you? There are many things, many hindrances, many obstacles that are in our path. Maybe your problem is proud self-reliance. This is the kind of person who genuinely just, you know, just tries to live the right kind of life. Maybe trying to make up even for past failures. Trying hard to redeem themselves in God's eyes. They kind of think, well, maybe if I do this and do this better, then God will accept me. But that's not the way that God calls you to come to him, is it? No, because if that was the way that God wanted you to come to him, there would be no need for the cross. There wouldn't be no need for a savior. And in a sense, if you are trying to proudly rely on yourself, you're actually making yourself your own savior. And that does not go down well. There is only one savior, friends. Only one. And it's Jesus Christ. It is not you. So give up all of your helpless, empty tries. All of your efforts. They're pointless. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the, say it, cross. That's the way. That's the way. Isaiah 53 tells us Jesus has everything. And I mean everything to do with salvation. So don't rely on yourself. You'll only be disappointed. Secondly, our problem is sometimes self-justification. Well, this is when we excuse ourselves for our sin. We do that in many ways. We belittle it. Sometimes we think that we haven't offended anyone and that we're just genuinely loving people. You're not. But at other times, we seek to justify ourselves actually by blaming other people for our sins. Oh, I blame my parents. Oh, that person was just so ratty at me that I just had to give them a you know well, you can't blame other people for your sin and you can't excuse yourself for your sin you can't blame your parents you can't blame your circumstances to try almost in a sense present ourselves before God as being less sinful than we actually are no Romans chapter 3 that we read from, from tonight earlier tonight it's really really clear there is no one righteous not even one all have sinned. All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 tells us as well. In verse 6. I like the way the ESV puts it. All. And then personalizes it. All we like sheep have gone astray. Okay. We all have. Let's face it. Isaiah 53 does not allow for self-justification. Because Jesus is again removed from the equation. It's not good third obstacle to believing is, is actually just an enjoyable view of sin you know sin might entertain might bring pleasure of sorts but the problem is sin though it seems promising it delivers so little Tim Chester in a great book called You Can Change says this sin promises fun and excitement but delivers pain and tragedy Sin promises freedom, but it delivers slavery and addiction. 
Sin promises life and fulfillment, but it delivers emptiness, frustration, and death. Sin, friends, get this tonight, please. Sin does not deliver on its promises. It only delivers death. But Isaiah 53 tells us that God delivers on his promises. And what is before you tonight through this text in the Lord Jesus Christ is the prospect of a greater lasting joy in Jesus. So what should you do? You should just empty yourself of all things. You should just come humbly confessing your sin before the Father, pleading for his forgiveness, acknowledging that great saving work that this servant that was overlooked, that he's actually the Savior, and you should trust him for all of your life, that he forgives sin, that he averts God's righteous anger from you and indeed clothes you not in rags but in his very own robe of righteousness have you come to him have you confessed your sin do not overlook do not underestimate but come love believe put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and walk with many many other believers in this church onto that promised land of glory when you will see him face to face let's pray